0: Welcome to Biota Live. This recording is recorded live on TalkShoe, May 22nd, 2009. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biotech Podcast. For more information, check out biota.org podcast. So next episode, June 5th, uh, will be William R. Buckley. I've been promising William R. Buckley for a number of months now. And uh, it would be wonderful to have William on. I did email him and let him know that his, his time on Biota Live is coming up June 5th, and he's available for that. William R. Buckley's been doing stuff with Artificial Life since Artificial Life 1, uh, and I think it's probably best that he introduces himself in a full way. However, he has an amazing idea with regards to kind of internal um, replication, kind of RNA in Artificial Life. Uh, and he'll talk more on that with regards to it as being... A philosophy and something that is used in uh, a wide variety of things, including nanotechnology. So it would be wonderful having William R. Buckley on uh, the next show Live, and certainly he'll take it down a, a number of directions that we haven't, uh, we haven't yet experienced. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello, Tom. Well, we're on uh, we're a different provider, but it's the same old style. I've got some news and notes, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. Okay, can you hear me all right? You're coming in perfectly. Yeah, I think the the problem last time was just Blog Talk Radio, and it's telling me in in no uncertain terms that we are actually being recorded this evening. So great, better than nothing. So this evening's news and notes. Uh, Dick Gordon is, and I and uh, Bruce Damer have been in correspondence for probably a month or so now with regards to the Biota Five conference. The plan currently is that it's going to be held in 2011, and uh, Dick, Bruce, and I have had some correspondence about what it's going to contain. We have another caller on the line. Is that Gerald? Yes, it is. Good to speak to you, Gerald. Thank you for uh, for calling in. I know it's 5am where you are currently, so we've got some news and notes while you uh, while you warm up, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. As I was saying, the first uh, bit of news relates to the Biota 5 conference, and I know Uh, Gerald, you and I have discussed uh, Biota 5 for probably, well, I think even our first Biota podcast conversation related to the potential for a Biota conference in the future. However, Dick Gordon, Bruce Daber, and I have been having correspondence associated with Biota 5, and I put to Dick uh, this evening that we need to think of it possibly as a a three tier conference in order to touch on all the bases that uh, the kind of contemporary Biota community seems to be. uh, Coming from. So the three points that I made back to Dick in terms of possibilities for Biota 5, in fact, I think there should be three definite tracks. So the origins of artificial life, and this is fundamentally the kind of Evo group-related discussion currently. An artificial life perspective in the dialogue between science, philosophy, and religion, which is obviously the Dick gordon Brook project, of which um, I think Dick is planning a sequel associated with Biota 5. And the third topic, bridging the gap between artificial life in industry, academia, and, and as a hobby which I think is probably uh, Mark Bodeau's current cause. And I also mentioned to Dick that we need to get Mark Bodeau and the International Society involved with the Bodeau conference as well because they have a lot of background experience associated with putting on these kind of things. So that's Bodeau five. It's going to be happening in 2011. It looks like it will be happening um, at Dick Gordon's uh, Mm -hmm. campus in in Manitoba. So we need to probably start saving our pennies. Dick tells me that he's uh, going to apply for funding uh, to get some folks out there or possibly discounts on tickets or all that kind of good stuff. But uh, he wanted to be, put the announcement out to the biota community, and if folks are interested, they should get in contact with me, Dick or Bruce or all three of us, um, and I think probably we'll get some kind of mailing list together and actually start working towards what biotify will look like. Uh, but the three tracks that I've mentioned are the ones that I'd like to see there, and obviously from that comes a wide variety of possibly breakout groups, possibly... Uh, papers. I'm not even sure what the what the conference will look like, but Dick has asked me to put it out in the ether for the Biota Live listeners to get involved. Speaking of Biota Live listeners getting involved, uh, Bruce Damer is currently at the Origins of Life conference, I think in Italy somewhere, uh, and he's been sending me a lot of private audio. And as one of Bruce's advisors on the EvoGrid project, I've been given Uh, well, well more than 40 hours worth of audio that is considered private audio from various people that Bruce has recorded as he's done, um, you know, his his Evo grid discussions, uh, both with regards to the talks and also private meetings. Um, And the audio is quite overwhelming, but I'm starting to get to a kind of saturation point uh, which perhaps many of our listeners have already reached in terms of what the Evo Grid is and you know where the Evo Grid will be when Bruce finally um, finally begins work on the the Evo Grid or whether he's summoning it or any of these kind of things. And the thing that caught me through all this audio is um, the private audio. Obviously, I don't have any access to in terms of putting it out in a biota podcast or giving it out to the community. But I think there are a lot of good points coming through that. So, what struck me was that we really need almost a kind of sub podcast series called Visions of the Evo Grid, with the view that all the advisors, all the participants, all the muses, all the potential future users could be part of that Visions of the Evo Grid podcast, with the view that they would have a divergent set of views rather than getting the kind of pluralist, um, um, almost kind of homogenized uh, view of the Evo Grid that Bruce presents. Uh, through all these meetings and the updates that he presents in biota live if we could get all the kind of prickly components of the evo grid i think it would actually benefit the broader artificial life community because a lot of the a lot of the harder questions or a lot of the questions that are being kind of sanded over in bruce's discussion and his um, you know his travels around the planet are actually really interesting and prickly problems in contemporary artificial life so the idea is Similar to the old Biota interviews format, I will probably interview the uh, advisors and various folk in a relatively casually kind of laid-back fashion just to get their own particular views of what the Evo grid will be. And obviously, Gerald and Geoffrey, you will, you will no doubt be uh, within the first 10 folk that are interviewed in this regard. Okay. Uh, but the 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 vision is that we get a very pluralist description of what the evo grid is which i think will also in some regard help bruce um because i mean just as i've described it in terms of the being you know well it's many more hours more than 40 now but at least you know you know tens of hours worth of audio that's already been recorded and so many different voices Um, that I thought it would be an interesting way that we can kind of pass this back to the community with the view that there are probably uh, contemporary or future artificial life developers that may actually be interested in some of the things that don't go in the EVO grid um, in the long run. And I think that's what's fascinating to me. And also, I mean, it's a great way to get folks like Freeman Dyson and Pete Hutt and um, Stuart Kaufman and a wide variety of the folks at Bruce, obviously all the people at Flint, into the Biota podcast series as well. So obviously there's a, you know, there's a subtle thing with regards to getting them into the conversation associated with the kind of broader Biota community too. Uh, but Bruce thinks it's a wonderful idea. Um, he hasn't yet given me permission to interview Galen, but I think Galen will probably be one of the early folks that are interviewed because she is, uh, has a very strong vision associated with the Evo grid, which you catch on occasional conference calls. Galen is, is Bruce's wife. And um, so that's going to be coming in the future. My hope is to start recording this within the next uh, you know, couple of weeks and start putting in them in the Biota feed. And I'm interested in feedback from the broader uh, listenership to Biota Live about whether this is something that would interest them, whether they want to actively participate, or whether they're just getting evo-grid saturation, which ultimately is where the project came from in some regard because I was feeling... Uh, saturation in terms of the the homogenized evo grid another thing that has been going on in parallel to what bruce has been calling the evo grid deep is the idea of the evo grid broad and as i posted on the biota conversations mailing list today this has legacy in biota world which was the 1999 i think i put a a video an 18 minute video in the biota podcast stream featuring um gerald Jeffrey. you were at that conference weren't you you were at biota 3
1: uh, is this the one that was in San Jose many yeah. years ago?
0: I think you gave a few presentations, but I'm not sure whether you were actually at the Biota World, or maybe you were at the front row and the video camera just panned past you. I can't. Do you remember the Biota World discussions at Biota 3?
1: Uh, is this, uh, are you referring to the conference in San Jose several yes. years ago? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Uh huh. Yeah, but there was a
0: specific kind of breakaway group associated with this idea of Biota World. Ah. which was going to be what uh, biota at home was going to be and what the Evo Group Broad was going to be. I mean, this is the legacy of the biota community in terms of this project where all the artificial life simulations start into communicating. So I'm not sure. I know Geoffrey, uh, I know Gerald was there uh, because he proposed the XML phenotype format um, about the biota world discussion in '99. I'm not sure whether that was in the video that was released in the podcast stream, but that was certainly um, in some of the early sections. But I think the broader theme here is is being summarized in what I'm now calling Biota Eve, which is the day before biota, um, as opposed to any other meaning. Uh, and this is the idea of the XML phenotype for each simulation. So uh, potentially Darwin at home will have an XML phenotype. Potentially Dawkins puddle will have an XML phenotype. And we can all get together and say, well, these all have time, these all have energy, these all have location, uh, these all have some genetic representation, and basically find some common ground through that. I, I know, Gerald, you and I have been discussing this for, for you know a couple of years now, but in terms of your most recent development with Darwin at home, do you see yourself actually producing some kind of XML phenotype which could go into this idea of bioterease?
2: It's actually kind of funny if you look back uh, a number of years because uh, a a previous version of, uh, of what I'm working on now had a And a a vast repository of XML representations of the things that were evolved. It was uh, something I did years ago, and uh, they were sort of uh, the the application will automatically publish them, and uh, every time a new version. um, would uh, appear from the evolution process every once in a while. It would save the the, the most fit of the of the population, and that was saved in XML. It did that years ago, and I'm not doing it at the moment because uh, because I'm decided I've decided to use uh, uh, very very compact binary representations of of the, uh, the Darwin at home creatures because there's going to be a lot of communication between client and server, and I'm hoping to be able to send. Fairly large numbers of them back and forth really quickly, so the uh, a very compact um, you know transfer uh, tr- uh, transfer format is, is what I'm looking for. So I'm going to be using binary. Got it already set up by the way. That's the thing that uh, I finally wrestled to the ground this week. I'm able to store a creature uh, in its totality to uh, into binary form. In other words, uh, marshal or serialize. And then, uh, and then awaken it later. So I'm able to persist these things and send them uh, over the network without any uh, degradation in, in quality. In other words, I'm managing to save the entire state, which could be uh, in the process of reading a gene, for example. So it's, it's quite a complex state, but I've got it nailed. Terrific.
0: And I don't think it's an either or thing. I mean, my sense with regards to the XML phenotype is obviously Noble Ape has its own, um, as, as you say, its own internal um, file format with regards to saving things. And I mean, the, the purpose of uh, Blazer is not to uh, replace basically any internal mechanisms that we already have with regards to saving. The idea is um, to have some discussion associated with whether these simulations firstly have any shared ground, and if there is shared ground, whether there can be any meaningful communication between the simulations. And the XML phenotype idea was just a way of starting that in some regard. As Jeffrey- the,
2: the, sorry, the XML phenotype that I had, uh, that I was uh, associating with every creature, they were actually always stored in XML. And... Uh, it's actually quite elaborate because it contained every coordinate, you know. So it's it, it was uh, these bodies consisting of a whole bunch of parts, and they, and every part was uh, was recorded. So it, uh, it was quite a few kilobytes per creature, actually, because it was all uh, all the coordinate information and all the uh, the rest spans and stuff. So it was a, it was quite a file. Certainly. One.
0: Certainly. And I think that's part of the XML phenotype discussion. I mean, obviously, if if we're talking about Uh, exact or full representations then yes there is potential for things to get very very big but in having the kind of shared data conversation that can be something which is relatively small particularly if you just look at things like energy transfer um you know time space these kind of things associated with just a visual representation of the uh you know for example the darwin at home forms in in noble ape or vice versa i mean i think the, the representation component the XML phenotype is supposed to embody doesn't necessarily have to be you know every, every possible coordinate or, or anything of that detail. Jeffrey, as you listen in, I mean, do you think you could generate a, an XML phenotype for your um, you know current uh, gene pool slash Dawkins puddle? Is that something that you could do relatively easily?
1: Yeah, I believe I could. Uh, in fact, when I was listening to Gerald talk about his uh, uh, sort of uh, Taking snapshots of his creatures and w- awakening them later—that's um, basically what's happening to all the swimmers, uh, perhaps on a simpler level because they're 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 two-dimensional and so on. But I am I am capturing all the velocities and uh, positions and various states of mind, a little as they are, um, and kind of recreating them. That's when I save the pond or the, save the whole pool, or when I. Or, or when um, a user saves. Uh, no, actually, not when they save the, save the swimmer itself. Not all of these things need to be saved. But basically, yeah, um, it's all doable. There is a kind of a, a part of the code that takes the state. In fact, I think I remember there's, a, there's a, a class called swimmer state, which basically stores all of this stuff, and it can be recreated later. Terrific.
2: Terrific. So I, I actually I actually went even further. I have the uh, the binary format that I'm using. I can store I can store the thing in two ways. I can store it either uh, lossy or non-lossy, because uh, I'm talking about quite a number of coordinates in space, and um, what I've been able to do is basically you know a simple algorithm to chop space up into fairly small little cubes. And then record the coordinates in terms of those cubes, which is a lot less detail. And uh, since everything in my model is springy, um, I can I can revive these things from their lossy format, and so the coordinates are then sort of approximately right. And within a few ticks of the clock, they're uh, they're adjusted back to normal. So I'm able to sort of beam things over in a very uh, very small. Format literally, you know, several times smaller than the than a non-lossy format. It's fascinating that there's two choices.
1: Mm.
0: Cool. Certainly. So we have two additional commitments with regards to an XML phenotype, uh, with the potential discussion. I mean, my. My thinking currently is it could almost be done through either the existing Evo group mailing list, the existing Boat Conversations mailing list. Do you, um, Jeffrey, do you have a, a mailing list? I mean, I guess you're not open source yet, so you, you don't have a, a, a developer group, but do you have a like a, a user mailing list that you maintain with regards to your developments?
1: No, I don't have any, anything like that. I um, uh, just haven't, haven't spent the time setting that up and I, I don't, uh, I've never done anything like that, so I don't really know what's involved in it, but um, I don't have anything yet. Right. So,
0: I mean, in terms of, uh, I, I think this is a, a good enough discussion. I mean, we have a bio to wiki, um, which I know, Gerald, um, you have login access to the bio to wiki, don't you?
2: Um, I imagine, but I haven't touched it for quite a while.
0: Yeah, so and if we started throwing things together in the bio-wiki, that might be a, a shared way that we could kind of communicate these kind of ideas. I think I already have the Noble ape XML phenotype in there, uh, but it could give an opportunity for us to, uh, to see what was actually shared and get this idea of... Uh, of Biota Eve actually uh, cooking and I mean this goes out to the broader community as well, I see Eric Burton's in the chat room um, and he's someone who's certainly tinkered with a number of artificial life simulations in the past, so I mean this goes out to the broader community as well, that if you want to start creating your own XML phenotype for your favourite simulation, by all means get involved with this project and I think we'll probably do the general discussion through the Biota Conversations mailing list and uh, just use the, the wiki as a means of uh, of getting the things together This, in some regard, is a re-record of the uh, <laughs> the ill-fated last recording with, uh, with Jeffrey, Bruce Damer, and, and myself, um, and I wanted to bring up some of the topics that we did discuss last time with Jeffrey, just because we've both had a chance to uh, to think more on them. In particular, um, the ACL conference gliders on spheres and, and these kind of things, I mean, because you didn't have the opportunity here because it wasn't recorded, do you want to give some introduction to the ACL conference again, please?
1: Oh, um, well, uh, I can't say much about the conference itself because I've just started learning about it, but um, I will be doing a workshop uh, there. It's in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, and it's in um, December. Um, and what I'll be talking about is uh, sort of looking at artificial life simulations on spheres and considering. Um, you know, what's the difference between running an A-life simulation on a sphere versus a flat surface or or some other topology with particular interest in the biosphere and what kinds of dynamics occur on the biosphere um, because it's a sphere. And I I don't actually have answers yet. I just have these questions. And I think that uh, studying the spherehood of our planet in terms of Artificial life simulations is, could be an inter- interesting topic. And as I've uh, discussed with Gerald a little bit and with you last time, running uh, cellular automata, which are fairly predictable, well-behaved models on a sphere using the geodesic grid, um, is kind of one way to look at this issue um, you know, mathematically. So that's kind of where I'm at right now.
0: And in terms of the broader kind of surveying of of different perspectives, I mean, you start off with um, gliders. certainly when you were on last time we discussed intelligent agents, um, and particularly the idea of uh, agent navigation over a sphere versus agent navigation over a plane. Right. So, Gerald, for the the listeners, what's your particular perspective with regards to spheres of artificial life simulation?
2: Well, that's uh, it's core to what I'm doing, actually. Uh, coincidentally, and I, I've been absolutely fascinated with uh, with geodesic spheres for the longest time. Um, my current uh, model of the universe for Darwin at Home is spherical. Uh, it's, it's, to me, it makes uh, makes perfect sense because it's uh, two dimensional, so it's sort of manageable. I can zoom down to like the planet's surface and cruise around, but um, at the same time. You're sort of uh, you, you've got your fate sealed. I mean, you're going to encounter others. If there's others on the sphere, you'll uh, and you're wandering around, you'll eventually get to them. <laughs> and and actually, the, the the way I'm doing it right now, code-wise, is is uh, the the universe is divided into triangles, which is interesting because the surface of a sphere is, of course, dividable into triangles. Um, by the way, I was was talking with uh, with Jeffrey about uh, about the sphere the other day and about uh, running life on it you know like the um, the solar automaton and uh, a number of years ago, I built exactly that. I mentioned that and I haven't quite uh, dug up that code and published it again but uh, um, I did exactly that with an openGL sphere with uh, little hexagonal patches. And uh, the, one of the most interesting things to keep in mind with this sphere is that like, it's two-dimensional, it's, uh, it's closed, so it's a, it's a finite two-dimensional universe, um, but also um, it's got sort of errors in it, in a way. I mean, you can't, you can't put a regular pattern on it. There are uh, hexagons everywhere except for 12 points. So there there are twelve places where you just can't have a hexagon, you have to break the rules and, and have a pentagon. And those are basically the corners of of the sphere, the corners of the icosahedron. So uh that has a really Im- interesting impact on a cellular automaton because you know the what we're used to is sort of the uh the, the plain old square scenario on a on an infinite two D surface. Whereas on the sphere you've got these corners in a way and they have a dramatic effect because at least if you use the rules uh, similar to to Conway's life because it depends on how many neighbors are alive and how many are not and there are some anomalies in there are 12 anomalies of of these patches because they've got five neighbors instead of six so it it causes the, the patterns that appear are a consequence of these corners which is fascinating.
1: Yes, yes, that's that's uh, that's exactly the, the the question that I've been exploring. And in fact, um, Gerald, you're talking about using a, an icosahedral geodesic, but there are of course other ways to make geodesics. So, for instance, if you use a cube, which I think is something that you had done, Tom. It's it's my favorite method because instead of having uh, twelve, you only have eight. <laughs>
2: eight. It, it's it's less uh, it's less accurate though because. Uh, uh, as uh, Fuller showed way back when, uh, when he created his uh, map of the world where all the landmasses are connected uh, by virtue of slicing up the surface in triangles and then doing some extra little ex- uh, sub-slicing, but, um, the the point is, you know, you can, uh, you can, uh, oh, I guess I'm not quite awake yet. Uh, I,
1: no, I, I can express it. Um, the the these points these anomalous points express the curvature of the sphere. In the case of an icos- icosahedral geodesic, you've got twelve, and the difference is only uh, between hexagonal and pentagonal uh, cells. Whereas in a cube, uh, you've got triangular uh, cells at the eight corners, which is a, a tighter curvature. So it's more anomalous. If you go all the way down to a tetrahedron. Uh, if you've ever d- done a geodesic on a tetrahedron, you've got very mm-hmm. exaggerated points of curvature. And if you go all the way down to uh, the way the Mercator projection is, is, is projected, where you've got a north and south pole, the north and south pole are extremely distorted regions. So you can just think of it as how you distribute the curvature of the grid
2: on the sphere. Yeah, and you could also say that the uh, icosahedron is the best, possible representation because it involves the least distortion when you squeeze it flat.
0: Correct, yeah. Yes, I mean my, my perspective with regards to the cube was always that the underlying surface um, that I was mapping to had a resolution as well and the cube was always uh, where a unit on the cube was equal to a fractional unit of what I was mapping down onto in, in terms of just having vast resolutions. So particularly um, because the um, Noble 8 landscape algorithms are really um, fundamentally fractal in terms of the way that they're generated, um, the idea of these points um, really is, is immaterial in terms of the fractal nature of the way the landscapes are generated, and certainly for my purposes... Moving that fractal to anything other than, uh, uh, you know, square coordinates in some regards made it very difficult to actually replicate that kind of fractal behavior. I remember, Gerald, when you were originally talking about spheres, I thought quite a bit uh, about how you would take some of these fractal uh, behaviors to. Um, uh, you know the, the, the various mappings that we've described um, in terms of um, in terms of the, the hexagons and the, these kind of things are the are the fractal mappings that you know of in order to create realistic landscapes.
2: Uh, I haven't looked that up, um, but it's it, it's really interesting the difference between uh, the, the icosahedral approach and and the cubic approach. It's something to really look into. Uh, maybe for people in the audience as well, because um, uh, the more you play around with spheres, the more you realize that it it is sort of uh, straightforward. You know, you, you start to learn the rules and get an appreciation for it fairly quickly. But at the same time, you realize that most of the world is crippled with respect to understanding how the sphere, uh, the icosahedral sphere works, because we just we just don't grow up with, hexagons and pentagons making up a surf, a surface excuse me the um, we just we're, we're just not used to reasoning in that way and it's really interesting when you when we play around with the sphere and discover that that it is actually yeah. uh, frustratingly difficult to to really work with it because we're just not accustomed to it we don't we don't get taught this in school right that's we, one have,
1: of the, we have to go uh, kind of go through the Buckminster Fuller uh, phases of discovery uh, and kind of reach reach that same level. Uh, actually, can I just make w- one point? Um, we were talking about gliders. Uh, I did make one discovery that in some of the glider-rich uh, cellular automata that I discovered, some of them when they pass over these points, they they actually survive quite well. And this is this is sort of the test that I that I want to do is that there are certain kinds of CA that are robust upon these. Um, kind of discontinuities uh and so looking at ca in terms of robustness uh over discontinuities in the in the grid is is an interesting thing some occasionally a glider will fall apart or split into two gliders in these in these points uh but mostly they would just pass right through and kind of reassemble themselves which was kind of cool to see
2: well there's um there's a whole exploration of different kinds of automata in uh, uh Wolfram's a new kind of science that like he uh, he starts with the the completely digital ones but eventually goes to uh you know floating points and uh, whatever else to make cellular automata as well, uh, automata as well and I can imagine if you do something that's uh, sort of less discrete that you will uh, you'll be able to create things that uh shouldn't necessarily notice that they're on one of these corners but then you're sort of you're you're overriding the uh, the you know the, the the strangeness of the sphere by the way uh, there's uh, I created a long time ago I went through all the effort to create a, a spherical data structure and I'm using it now extensively still in, in all sorts of places and what I uh, what I do is I, I generate every dot of a geodesic sphere uh, arbitrarily detailed. So I'm able to do that. It just, you know, adjusts the coordinates to uh, push them out to be actually spherical in form. But every uh, vertex has, uh, has its coordinates. And I'm also, in this, uh, in this object, I've made a connection. Um, mm-hmm. So you can actually navigate around from one, from one patch to at the neighbor patches. Oh. At all the- all the connections are made. So that makes it really easy to do, uh, you know, things that travel around. And, uh, you know, it's lovely to be able to generate them arbitrarily large. I've been using them for any number of things in the last while. I use them for creating really nice-looking OpenGL spheres, nicer than the sort of uh, standard sphere, which is a, in a sense a Mercator sort of, uh, you know, with the... the Two poles, having them really squeeze like a mm-hmm. like, like a sphincter, I guess. <laughs> um, and so this this, and also I've used it to as a sort of a, a scaffolding in which to build spherical tensegrities. So basically, this uh, I, I create a sphere and then uh, make the uh, uh, create the, the tensegrity and then toss the sphere, throw it away.
0: Mm. But in terms of the, I mean, this is very much kind of the um, you know the. Uh, the developer God looking down on the sphere. In terms of the intelligent agent on the sphere, uh, Gerald, is this library able to give meaningful navigation for them as well?
2: Yeah, it was actually built precisely for that, so that you could uh, create things that have the point of view of being on the surface, because the way it works is there's not even... I mean, that, this is one of the things here. Just uh, let your mind wander a little bit about this, uh, on the sphere and uh, avoid... The, um, the sort of prejudice of having it rotate, which gives it poles. You know, suppose it's not rotating, so it doesn't have poles, which is uh, like the Darwin and home model currently. If you're on the surface, there's no such thing as north or south. There there really is no such thing as direction. Uh, which is interesting you know it doesn't really matter which direction you go because you're not heading towards or away from any pool or anything any uh, every every one of these 12 corners is identical so that's really the only way you can uh, locate yourself so the way I built this library to work is you have two patches in in mind when you navigate and in the case when you're standing on a hexagon you can go straight ahead but if you're on a pentagon, you can't go straight ahead. You can go slightly to the left, slightly to the right, or backwards. Mm. But, but you can't necess- you can't go across. Uh, you can't go straight ahead. So, in effect, you know, you can navigate around, but you have to be ready with two sets of rules. One for when you're in hexagon land, and one for when you accidentally step on a, on a pentagonal corner, because you've got, you know, a different number of neighbors. So... Mm. Uh, but, yeah, but you're moving
0: in of... quanta. You're moving in quanta over individual hexes, or when you're on a uh, pentagonal one, into another hex, or potentially into from a hex into a pentagon. I mean, this is what you're saying.
2: These are these are discrete steps. They're like you know uh, um, uh, patches on, on a chessboard. Only they're tri- they're uh, hexagonal and pentagonal, and they have different numbers of neighbors. So yeah, they're they're discrete patches.
0: So the chat room is asking me to introduce you both. We have on the call. Gerald DeYoung and Jeffrey Ventrella. We also have in the chat room Eric Burton, Dick Gordon, and William R. Buckley, so and a number of other folk as well. So obviously, Talkshow is showing us that folks who want to participate can quite actively. Thank you very much to the folks in the chat room, and if you have any questions, please um, you know please uh, type them in, and I'll be sure to ask them. Just before we move on, um, Gerald, in particular, I mean, have you looked at Wolfram Alpha in the past
2: week? Uh, no, I've been reading the odd thing about it here and there. Um, there are some important things to keep in mind when you're looking at Wolfram Alpha because it's it's not like a Google killer. It's it's a completely different story, and uh, the source of the information and what you can do with the results. There are some interesting rules set up about that. I mean, they they have a different sort of uh, Wolfram has a very different corporate attitude than Google does, for example. So look at the fine print. Have you been using it, Jeffrey?
1: No, I just caught a little bit of the Wolfram on the video. Um, Not enough to to get a good grok of it. Uh, So I'm I'm waiting to hear more. My own view is it's very much like an almanac. So
0: rather than being a a standard search, you get kind of almanac entries Mm -hmm. um, with regards to names and dates and these kind of things. And my real frustration is the Um, I guess the great power that I found when I used Mathematica, I used Mathematica when I was at university, was its ability to kind of move you in different directions. I mean, ultimately, in some regard, analogous to Wikipedia, when you look something up and you see another link in the Wikipedia thing and you move all, you know, all around Wikipedia with regards to just the uh, active text links. But I mean, so something analogous that goes on with Mathematica in terms of actually e- exploring various mathematical spaces, and certainly that was my hope with regards to Wolfram Alpha. I'm, I'm not quite as heavily a Wolfram devotee as, as Gerald is, um, but certainly I had uh, very high expectations, and as it is currently, I do understand that it's very early days. Um, but I was a bit frustrated with the very, the very basic nature of the stuff that I could do with it, um, and certainly this was something that I think Rudolf Pinnikoff uh, mentioned in a bios life recently um, that we should be following because there are there are underlying components that have some uh, van into artificial life in some regards. so I was interested in hearing uh, both your ideas with regards to this. the next topic I wanted to discuss a bit was with regards to the idea of the Evo grid layers. And I did kind of discuss this in the summary, but I wanted to talk more. I mean, Gerald, you've already, um, you've already thrown down your own position with regards to the idea of, of, layered physics and simulation, but I wanted to talk more with Jeffrey, um, I mean, I first explained this idea to you on the call that wasn't recorded, which regards the ideas of the layers of physics and uh, the way uh, the EvoGrid would move through these layers. Have you had any any chance to kind of reflect on this, and do you want to add anything more to your thinking, Jeffrey? Uh,
1: no, I, I don't have any more thinking on it. Maybe you can remind me what we talked about. There's different layers that are that are sounds like they're critical uh, for for EvoGrid to have. Uh, Many resolutions of of, uh, of behavior, correct? So
0: this was an idea that was put forward um, by a number of sources. I mean, this is why um, ultimately I want the kind of visions of the EvoGrid um, audio, so I can say you know reference people's names here. But certainly the initial discussion came through Dick Gordon and possibly a couple of other people. Bruce talked to um, at a conference with regards to the idea that the only way to do the EvoGrid, and this is the EvoGrid, is the idea of the origins of artificial life, basically starting with um, almost artificial life chemistry building blocks and seeing if you can get uh, you know, RNA chains from that, this kind of movement. It required there to be various layers of uh, simulation physics. So you start off with maybe even subatomic, maybe atomic level, moving into molecular, moving into... Um, You know, and so it moves on. My concern with regards to this, um, which uh, Gerald has stated as well, is the idea that what artificial life algorithms do, and this came through um, the Eli Lilly fellow who was on Ed Salford, who was on last year on Biota Live, is that they're fundamentally search algorithms. So if you create any kind of even uh, artificial non-life, even pre-artificial life simulation algorithm, It is fundamentally going to search the simulation space and find the nearest neighbors in order to move from one physics layer to the next. So that's my first concern with regards to it. My second concern is the idea of novelty, that what you're actually trying to do in the Evo grid is distill some novelty associated with what the origins of life actually hold. And if you have these arbitrary physics layers that you've established that are, are defined in some way that move from you know, atoms to molecules, molecules to what have you, and kind of go on in a progressive way, that the novelty that you may have at the atomic level that's required to create RNA or whatever it becomes in the EvoCred will be lost through these physics layers. So they're actually kind of brutalizing points where the underlying novelty that's ultimately making the simulation, you know, um, <laughs> worth continuing with uh, is being lost. Now... I think the ideas here have uh, basically been talked about to death, and certainly listening to the ongoing audio that Bruce is sending me, (laughs) my sense is really that um, the grid needs to be distilled at least in a single simulation idea, Uh, and that is independent of the physics discussion. So really, the physics discussion is associated with kind of 15 to 20 steps along the line, Um, And in parallel to this, actually, I got my books from Australia and I had a lot of books that were uh, older, kind of plant chemistry, kind of 1920s, you know, um, chemical engineering, plant chemistry, uh, a lot of biochemistry. I mean, I had forgotten that I actually had these books and particularly the um, organic chemistry and plant chemistry from the early 20s. My first real job while I was going through high school and university was working at a physics institution with three elderly physicists in their 70s and 80s. And one of the physicists I worked with um, uh, had a brain tumour at the time and basically gave me his entire library associated with uh, physics, biochemistry. So I have a lot of old books that I'd completely forgotten about um, that are now uh, with me. And summing through these books really got, gave, got me thinking that what we need to do in terms of supporting Bruce from a simulation perspective, is to give these kind of narratives and how we actually map these things onto simulation at the lowest possible level, with the view that discussing these kind of abstract ideas in physics and layers and these kind of things is secondary to the work that, for example, Peter Newman is doing currently for Bruce um, in terms of taking actual uh, atomic and molecular simulations and running them with the view that they may be the basis for the original EvoCrit. So Gerald, as you listen into this, I mean, does it make some sense in your in your current thinking associated with the EvoGrid?
2: I hope you'll uh, keep forgiving me for being uh, perhaps the only uh, vocal EvoGrid uh, skeptic. But uh, <laughs> there's um, there's a couple of things that that um, that sort of bother me about this scenario, and that is, uh, I don't know. One thing is. Uh, there's a tendency to talk about what is the, the evo grid. Well, it is nothing. You should talk about what it is to become, perhaps. And then, uh, then you know, whenever somebody talks about what the evo grid is, I'm just sitting there going, um, "Folks, uh, it is nothing. It is becoming something, perhaps, but it is nothing." Secondly. Um, I'm uh, I'm also interested to have somebody bring on the geometry because uh, at some level there's going to be some geometry. There's going to be interrelationships. There's going to be things happening at that level. And and you know the devil is in the details. Let let me uh, hear something about how you're going to deal with uh, the calculations involved with proximity and. Uh, you know, how are you going to make things avoid uh, in in the geometry avoid you know overlapping each other? There's a whole bunch of things that have to be resolved in some way or another, and until I see these things uh, somewhat resolved, I'm not willing to accept that the evil grid is anything until you know it can be becoming something. You can summon it all you want, but somebody's got to break the ground and and actually you know uh, come up with some geometrical approaches.
1: Do you want to add something to that, Jeffrey? Um, well, I, I, I've i been listening and thinking about the whole concept of bottom-up, uh, which is very key in artificial life. I like to think of a, a good artificial life simulation as one which starts at, at some level of physics or or representation, and and uh, uh, several things emerge from that, bringing it up to perhaps another, another level of behavior, uh, which, which may be the beginning point of, of some other artificial life simulation. Um, but uh, br- bridging between these layers, like if you're talking about molecules, and then if you want to get to geometry, where, as Gerald said, you're looking at proximities and things, things of that sort, that's quite a large distance, um, and I don't know if, if in this millennium we have computers or simulations that can do that, but maybe eventually we will. Um, I also think that um, while the goal, while it's ideally it would be great to have a, a, an artificial life simulation that, that bridges all of these levels and, and where, where there's no, nothing arbitrary, um, there might be some, some interesting uh, kinds of models, and there probably are already. If 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 um, we wanted to look look into it, um, where there are multi, two or a few layers of uh, physics, perhaps where the emergent behavior of the lowest level informs the next level, does that make any sense? Has there been any work of this? Is there any precedence in this? Do you
2: know? It was. This was the issue that we talked about quite a bit, Tom, wasn't it? Because uh, there was this discussion of uh, you know how you go from one level to the next. And uh, and <clears throat> yeah, my tendency is to think that there's going to be arbitrariness involved.
0: Certainly. Look, I'm just going to read what the chat room is typing, because I think that's actually quite interesting, and then I'll give my, my own view with regards to this. So William L. Buckley, who... Uh, uh, Dates back to the first Biota, first A Life conference, rather, is very skeptical of the Evo Grid as well and feels that it's really putting old wine in new bottles. We will have the benefit of talking to William um, next Biota Live, and I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to, to chat with regards to the Evo Grid. Um, Eric Burton is saying that the Evo Grid is unbounded brilliance, and Gerald DeYoung is lavishing his social capital on naysaying, uh, which I thought was uh, you know worthy mentioning. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, Dick Gordon is just testing things uh so anyway uh, how about guests signing in okay so the chat is is now going crazy i'll give you my summary i, I agree with everything that you said gerald in fact my own experience with regards to the evo grid privately is listening to um lots and lots of audio from these conferences of people just riffing continuously about what the evo grid is um and as you say as something that actually exists and I think, particularly as simulation authors, we are in a unique perspective to actually know what our own simulations are in a very intimate way. There are two parts to EvoGrid that I see. The first is an ability, because Bruce Damer just attends these conferences and talks, uh, and in many regards, I think we can all agree is a visionary of some, you know, some merit. Uh, and in doing this, he is bringing people into the conversation that I think can be brought into the biota community. So that's really the idea of visions of the EVO grid is actually getting these people talking in the biota community to introduce them to the biota community. So I think the EVO grid in that regard is something that's quite separate from this thing which may happen in the future. Mm. Having said that, um, in particular going through all these old books and in particular also starting a new job this week... I do get the sense that software, and we're all very intimate with this, is something that is very applied and very practical, and certainly through the private discussions that I've had with Bruce, um, Dick Gordon's been on them as well, also um, Peter Newman. The question I always put back to Bruce is, as the EvoGrid as a description expands, how much would it actually cost to make the EvoGrid? When Bruce originally started the EvoGrid, it was very much this idea of open source. So basically, we would have people like Adam Arimenko, um, you know, basically Grayson Boston, Grayson Silicon Valley, Grayson London, all you know, actively contributing to the EvoGrid as a kind of open source collective. And it was very much this idea of Eve then. Now, we have something which is completely different, which I actually think is um, something which would cost... Um, millions of dollars to actually implement. I mean, I think the EVO Grid is something real, requires tens of programmers, it requires things which Bruce hasn't even imagined yet. So this is, in some regard, the real narrative associated with summoning the EvoGrid, that what Bruce is actually doing is not talking about anything that is real currently. It is something which is sparking ideas in a broader community to bring them into the artificial life community. It's almost the, uh, the bait-and-switch method, fundamentally, uh, to get folks <laughs> such as Freeman Dyson and others into the artificial life community, uh, bio community, um, International Society of Artificial Life, all the groups that we've gathered together. So in this regard, the EvoGrid isn't ideal. The EvoGrid isn't something like Darwin at Home. It isn't something like Gene Paul. It isn't something like Noble Ape. It isn't something like Breve. It, like it isn't something real, currently. However, what it is in terms of uh, potential is getting these kind of thinkers and these kind of people actively involved in some kind of discussion, which I'm trying to bring into the biota community with the view that, you know, if Freeman Dyson was working with uh, you, Jeffrey, or you, Gerald, you would have a very different kind of simulation at the end of your interaction with Freeman Dyson. Mm. So I think there's some real benefit in the EVO grid, in the summoning the EVO grid idea as a means of bringing people into the community. And in this regard, this is why... I've maintained the kind of EvoGrid discussions in the Bios podcasts because I think it's not about something that is real, it's about something that is potential, and it's something which is now almost completely removed from what we talk about in terms of artificial life.
1: I see the uh, EvoGrid as a meme, kind of, M-E-M-E. I think it's a meme. It's it's an idea that's rather catchy and it gets people talking. I, I think maybe that's what you're talking about, Tom. Uh, and perhaps it may turn into something and we don't quite know yet.
0: I think the, there is another there is another issue in the artificial life community that is associated with um, the idea of artificial life in industry, academia, but also moving the hobbyists back into something where they're actually getting paid to develop artificial life. And the EvoGrid is probably not a particularly good method to move to that point, but it is at least starting a discussion, I think, that will... Results in at least some discourse associated with how much does it cost to actually produce these kind of simulations. So in parallel to this, particularly with regards to um, the astrobiological community, I think there's a lot of potential in what Bruce is doing currently to bring uh, things like NASA funding and these kind of things into the artificial life community. So I think the functional purpose associated with the EVO grid is something which... I tried to kind of say uh, implicitly, but I'm now starting to say explicitly just to kind of bring people up to speed with why we constantly seem to be talking about this thing that isn't actually happening, as as Gerald puts so wonderfully. Um, but the idea of the EvoGrid, as, as Jeffrey says, is the meme, um, is really what we're running with currently. And certainly in my own role as an advisor on the EvoGrid team, I've said to Bruce that he needs to move from talking about the EvoGrid as something that is real in, to this idea of summoning it in the future. I mean, Gerald, as I describe it this way, does this resonate with you at all?
2: Oh, absolutely, Tom. I thought that was the 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 best thing I ever heard about the Evo Grid was the the word summoning because uh, that, that's much more you know realistic. It's it's almost uh, it, it's sort of dangerous to use the wrong language in 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 on these things because. You have to be a little careful about the words you use. If you use the word is, you know, you're, you're, you're stepping on uh, thin ice. So make sure you uh, you use uh, becoming and use uh, summoning instead of, you know, talking about what it is because that's a mistake you can easily make when you've talked about something for long enough. You know, you, you eventually talk about it as if it's there, but it really isn't quite yet.
0: You yeah, said so something that scares me actually when I listen to the private audio is that there is a... There is a um I mean, Bruce does this when he, when he talks about it, particularly when he was at the Flint lab. Uh, I think the Flint people, and also when he's talking to Stuart Kaufman, you do get the underlying sense that there is a transition between future and present in, in Bruce's own talking, and certainly this is why I've um, emphasised the idea of summoning the Evo grid. Um, I, I, I mean, it's difficult to say what it will become, and certainly Bruce is completely independent of you know, my own thinking in, in, in many ways with regards to this. Um, but it's going to be a wild ride and I think the biotech community is kind of hanging on by the the boot strings and certainly as I hear all the audio coming back from Bruce uh, introducing some of these people into the broader um, biotech community would would indeed be a very wonderful thing um, and and not to be sniffed at so uh, what more did I have to discuss Um, I wanted to put out an idea Um, I'm currently writing for H+, which is uh, a kind of online magazine um, i submitted an article to them I'm writing another article currently uh, and it's to do with Freeman Dyson's challenge to global warming and I thought this was a particularly good thing to talk about as we're talking about spheres and also I know uh, Jeffrey, in particular uh, you know your, your background with regards to Gaia and all this kind of stuff um, is, is important so I wanted to put this to you in particular I think Gerald can kind of come along for the ride But Freeman-Johnson's challenge associated with um, global warming is that we need to write better simulations. And as a simulation author, I see that as being relatively neutral in terms of it being for or against global warming. However, obviously, uh, the against folk kind of jumped on that as a means of saying, you know, of course, the simulations are horrible, we need to write better simulations. What interests me in that thinking is that... Certainly my own background with regards to simulations, primarily physics simulations, but also some of the tinkering that I've done with Noble 8, indicates that when you write better simulations, they usually kind of move towards the results that you've already confirmed. And there's no notion with regards to what Freeman Dyson is saying. I mean, I take take it the other way, that if we write better simulations, we'll probably see the circumstances are in a far worse situation than we, we even view them currently. I don't think it's an ideological claim that better simulations need to be written. And so I started exploring this going back through um, reading Freeman Dyson and also others associated with this. And I think the idea that um, improving simulations and getting finer results actually moving away from this idea of um, uh, reversible um, uh, global warming, that there are things that we can do now to actually you know, reverse the situation, which I think is the, is the positivist line, if we move from that, and if the simulations actually show that we are in an irreversible situation and things are, in fact, getting, um, you know, considerably uh, considerably worse. I'm seeing Dick Gordon here. Ah, uh, he's saying more. Anyway, that, uh, you know, this is something where simulation authors can actually participate in a kind of philosophical uh, view. Uh, I mean, Jeffrey, this is something, obviously, that you think about quite a bit. Does that seem reasonable
2: to you?
1: Yeah, well... Uh, it, I think actually the, the real solution to, to climate change is, is to reduce the human population to about a fifth and to keep it that way, but that's not going to be easy. Um, simulations, I think, will help, um, and I think uh, more people simulating stuff is, is great. I don't, I'm not sure if simulations are neutral, and I think you brought up some interesting points, uh, uh, what 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 is a good simulation? It's it's interesting making an artificial life simulation. I always have an idea in mind of what kind of cool stuff I would <laughs> like to see emerge from my simulation, which means that already I'm I'm doing the wrong thing. Uh, I'm not um, I, I'm, I'm starting I'm doing a top down thing. But at any rate, um, whether simulations can help, I'm not sure. Sh- uh, I guess it depends on what, what what he means by, by that. Uh, if he means making simulations to help us better understand um, what what we're what we're doing wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think we know what we're doing wrong. We're 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 putting carbon dioxide in the air and we're polluting, and we're overpopulating. Um, well,
2: there's there, it, when you're talking about a grid of computers, we're talking about large numbers of computers running in parallel. I don't know if you guys have been looking into this, but uh, it's remarkable when you actually do the numbers and see how much of our uh, energy is being consumed by uh, by large numbers of computers. So, as far as I'm concerned, if you're making a a, a large, elaborate grid-based simulation, you've been before. You better, yeah. You better be ready with your carbon credits because uh, you got to you got to calculate out how much that is compared to taking a, a plane flight across uh, across the Atlantic or something. It's these are significant amounts of energy, and the energy is largely being still created by coal. So if you build an EVO grid, you better already be ready to apologize and make sure that the value of it uh, compensates for the fact that it's contributing to global warming. So let's be realistic about this.
1: Yes, think about how, how your head gets hot when you think a lot. Yeah, you know, that's similar.
2: Well, Tom, you know as well, uh, there's no better way to get a chip hot.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, we always return
0: to the fact that I'm the greatest polluter of the artificial life community. But, uh, <laughs> But moving kind of slightly, I mean, I think the thing that I'm certainly writing this H-Plus article, the thing that occurred to me is that um, for the folks against global warming, I mean, obviously there is a continuum. Um, the kind of shared group that I like to focus on on, on both sides is all about developing uh, newer, cleaner technology. And there seems to be uh, folks on both sides that are saying that. Um, this is my um, fence sitting, as Gerald has described in the past. But the thing that interests me with regards to the, we need to make better simulations is the um, discussion associated with you know what what actually happens in this elemental um, you know understanding of rain falling and warmth and these kind of things um, and certainly the the folks against uh, of, of one extreme have a, a very you know if it doesn 't come from the hand of a human, then it must be something that is purely natural and I think simulation is so totally removed from that narrative it 's an interesting thing um, Jeffrey that you use the term climate change um, because certainly following. Uh, douglas rushkov his um i think uh, 2004 uh documentary the persuaders um followed the origin of the term climate change um and it really versus global warming um so it's interesting that um, folks that are uh, global warming advocates have adopted the term climate change um anyway when the h plus article comes out you'll see my conclusions and also the related references associated with that but it's certainly something that i'm enjoying This idea of taking what we do with artificial life and moving it into a different domain, moving it into philosophy, moving it into popular culture, moving it into something that can be discussed. And the first article that I hope will be published in H plus relates to my chapter in Dick Gordon's book associated with um, metrics and intelligent systems and, you know, where we can get those from in the real world. So, Jeffrey, I mean, in terms of the, in terms of the next few months for, for folks who are fans of your work, will there be any new releases will there be any new software that folks can download
1: oh uh i don't think i don't think anytime soon uh, i i do have one one thing that i'm working on which is uh which i th- i think is i think might be kind of cool but it's too early to talk about that but um yeah by by the time I, I i go to the um uh, it's in australia i think i'll have i think i'll have terrific and,
0: and in ter- in terms of the plan to move Stuff open source. What's is the, is that still on the? I know when you were on the non-recorded show, you mentioned that you have a fellow who's currently doing a 3D version of Gene um, uh, pool.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not open source, but he's doing a 3D version. Um, so, uh, so that that should be pretty cool. Terrific. And in terms of the open source, do you think do you think ACAL
0: will be the the launch point for the open source version? I, I don't know, Tom. I'm not sure yet. Okay. Well, if you need any assistance with that in terms of uh, moving things into open source, you have two very able bodies on the call currently, and I think a few in the chat room as well that would be willing to sign NDAs or do whatever is necessary to uh, to actually get your stuff out to as uh, you know as many interested folk as possible. Cool. And, Gerald, I mean, every time I talk to you, it seems to be constant changes with regards to Darwin at home. I notice you haven't recorded a podcast in a while. Are you you planning on updating folks via the podcast?
2: Oh, of course. It's just that uh, I'm still sort of in the mode where I'm uh, trying to, uh, uh, you know, make use of as many opportunities as possible while the economy is still uh, supporting me. So, um, I will be getting more and more time as the year goes on uh to work on the project and i 'm still doing things uh quite significant things in in the the time I have in between uh in between work and everything else and uh I'm making significant progress and it 's really sort of coming together it 's just that I need some extended periods to work on and i think i'll get that this summer
0: know so,
2: uh Don't I'm, be expected, <laughs> I'm expecting i'm expecting a release uh of of some sort of demo by the fall, so uh, it's uh, it's exciting because I think there's I've been working for quite a long time. It's uh, this is some serious deferment of gratification. I've been uh, you know building chunks and really enjoying it, but I can't really put it out there and get much feedback. And and definitely you know the podcast has been lagging a little, but uh, there also hasn't been too much happening. I'm I'm pretty well ready to do another one now. <coughs> and I imagine, I imagine that when, I'm get, when I start to get rolling again that I'll be probably putting them out more frequently when, uh, when things are really happening quickly.
0: I was hoping William my Buckley would call in so he could give some introduction to what he would be talking about next Biota Live, but on June 5th, we will have the man himself. It will be a wonderful opportunity to discuss a number of the things associated with the biota community and also his, his work up until now and also his views with regards to the EvoGrid and a number of other things. Jeffrey Gerald, it's always a pleasure to have you both on Bios live. Um, And I think certainly, uh, Gerald, your feedback with regards to the Evo grid will be listened to by Bruce and the dissected, no doubt. Are you both active? I mean, you're both probably passive advisors to Bruce, but um, has he contacted you both about being active advisors?
2: I think he's got enough advisors by now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) 25 and counting. Well, thank you both uh, once again for participating, and thanks for the folks for listening in. This talk show version has been an unqualified success. The chat room is on fire. Uh, Folks are still typing. Thanks to Dick Gordon, William R. Buckley, uh, Eric Burton, and all the other people that have participated in the chat. Good chatting with you both. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, Tom.